looking at the book of Psalms. You've been going through the songbook of the Bible and today we are looking at Psalm 41. And this is a psalm written by David and it's also the last in our current series on the Psalms and the last on this particular book in the Psalms. And if you've got a Bible with you, why don't you turn there now to Psalm chapter 41 and the words will also be on the screen uh, too. And this is a psalm that was written by David, the famous shepherd come king, the most famous king in Israel's history, and today we will be going through Psalm 41. So here we go. Let's have a look at the opening lines, the opening lines of Psalm 41. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. The first line of Psalm 41. Now granted, it's not the catchiest of opening lines, but it is packed with truths. And other translation, maybe the translation you have in front of me, they word it slightly differently, but it helps us understand this opening line. The NRSV says, happy are those who consider the poor. The NIV, blessed, another word for happy, blessed. Oh no, happy, that was the previous one. Here we go. Blessed are those who have regard for the weak, another word for the poor. And I love how the NLT, the New Living Translation puts it. Oh, the joys of those who are kind to the poor. I love that. Oh, the joys who are kind to the poor. Now, what does it look like to remember the poor, to consider the weak? What does that look like? Is it just remembering, oh, there's, there's poor people? Is that kind of what this whole psalm is about, just remembering? Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember now, there's poor people. I don't know about you, but did anyone else here have, when you were a kid, when you're eating your dinner and there's that one bit on your plate that you didn't want to eat and you were trying to leave, did anyone here have a mum who said, don't you remember that there are kids starving around the world? Anyone else have a mum who said that? Yeah, okay, standard. And obviously, as a kid, you're thinking, mum, that's all well and good, but I'm not sure how me eating my carrots helps alleviate world hunger. So does it just mean remembering that there's poor people, that there's people starving, that there's people struggling? Is that what it means to remember the poor? Well, it's a good starting place. It's a good starting place to remember that there are actually people in poverty. The reality is that we currently, right now, are sat in one of the wealthiest places, places, not just in our country, but on the planet. And not just on the planet, but in the history of human beings. And yes, we do have poverty, even around where we live. And as a church, we do things to try and help alleviate that. Things like food bank, and obviously we're all aware of the cost of living crisis. But the truth is, if you're like me, I'm not genuinely worried that I'm going to starve to death anytime soon. 
I'm not worried that I'm going to not have anywhere to sleep. But for many people around the globe, in fact, millions of people, those are daily realities and struggles. And if you live in the kind of place I live, you're not presented with those realities every day. And so a good place is to remember that there are poor people in poverty, people struggling, people struggling even to survive. So what does it mean, again, to remember? Is it just to have kind of mental assent to the fact that there is a poverty problem in our planet? Well, Tim Keller says this. He explains it really helpfully. He says, to have regard for the weak means giving sustained reflection to the poor. This is far more than donating to charity. The call is to think hard about what keeps the poor down and work to help them. Keller is saying, when we remember the poor, this isn't just a kind of surface level or superficial or fleeting thing. It's not just a a post on social media or a, a donation to comic relief. To remember the poor is far more uh, impactful, far deeper than that. And it's, it's something that is costly. To remember the poor, to have regard for the weak, is a costly exercise. It's costly to our comfort zones. To consider the poor, as Keller reminds us, is to, to often think through why people are up in positions of poverty. And if you, like me, are not in a position of poverty, then to think through the reasons why people are in that position and to then realize that it might mean me having to lose some of my privilege and prosperity in in aid of helping others is not always the most comfortable of reflections. To reflect on how my uh, life, how my position, how my birth might be contributing to the poverty of others. And the responsibility that might arise if I truly consider the poor. It's costly. And almost inevitably, when we consider the poor, there's a cost to us financially. There's a cost to our money. To just see someone and say, oh, isn't it sad that they're poor? And know you have the means of helping with that isn't to truly consider the poor. It's a bit like in the book of James where it says, you know, what good does it do if you see to someone who's in poverty and say, oh, that's really hard for you. God bless you. I'll be praying for you. And then do nothing about it. In fact, the Bible speaks pretty harshly about that. It says that faith like that, faith without works, is dead. It's empty. It's hollow. And so thinking through these things can be costly, But here's the thing, whilst it's costly, it's so valuable. See, there's not just a a blessing for the person that you're helping, but there's a blessing for you. Blessed are those who remember the poor. So what does that actual blessing look like? What does it look like to receive the blessing that Psalm 41 talks about? Well, I think when we we look at this idea of blessing, for many of us, uh, it can be a slightly awkward and uncomfortable thing. Why do I say that? Well, firstly, this verse is saying to us that our actions have an impact on God's response to us. And I think for many of us, that can be quite challenging. In churches like ours where we talk about grace a lot, which is amazing, 
See, in churches like ours, we love to talk about, and rightly so, how Jesus has done it all. How your actions don't change whether he loves you or not. Whether your actions don't affect whether you are saved or not. We love talking about how we are hidden in Christ. That no sin you have done or will do will separate you from the love of God. Hallelujah. We love that and it's so true. But sometimes when we can be so focused on the things of how Jesus has done it all, we can have this nervousness to talk about our own actions and the impact of the way we live. And I read this interesting quote recently. It's quite provocative, but I think it summed it up well. It's by Dallas Willard. He says this, We are not only saved by grace, we are paralyzed by it. And what he's saying is often in churches like ours, we can uh, love talking about grace, but sometimes that can make us allergic to talk about the way in which our behavior and our actions really do matter to God. So yes, whilst we're hidden in Christ, God isn't blind. Whilst we're hidden in Christ and our actions don't affect whether we're saved or not, our actions matter deeply, deeply to God. See, God isn't just like, look, you're saved now. I'm just going to turn my back and wait in heaven until you come meet me in however many years that happens. No, he sees God isn't blind. He sees the poor. He remembers the poor. And when we remember the poor, it honors him. In fact, Jesus goes so far as to say he has a special place in his heart for the poor. And you might say, oh, well, that's a bit, bit weird. I thought he loved us all the same. Well, yes, he does. But time and time again, in Jesus' ministries, there was things he did and things he said that shows there was a special place in his heart for the poor. And at one, at one moment in Matthew 25, he, he so affiliates with the poor that he says this, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did for me. Now, I don't know if you, you, you fully grasp just how kind of crazy that is. Jesus is saying how you, how you treat the poor is an act of worship, an act of adoration to him. How you treat, how you love, how you respond to the poor says what you think about Jesus. That's a big statement. It's saying if you disregard the poor, you disregard Jesus. But if you love the poor, you love him. Our, matter, our actions matter to Jesus. Our actions make a difference. What you do in regards to caring for the poor is huge in the eyes of God. And so when it comes to this area of blessing, I don't think we need to be uncomfortable when we think about it. And I think another thing that can sometimes make us a bit uncomfortable is doing anything for blessing makes us feel a bit weird. It's like you should do the right thing because it's the right thing, not just because you'll get a blessing for it. And that's true. We shouldn't do things just for the motivation of blessing. However, the Bible repeatedly talks about the consequence of our actions and how the consequences of caring for the poor and loving people is blessing. See, blessing isn't the motivation for obedience to God, but it is the consequence. Blessing isn't the reason for loving people, but it is the reward. 
And you might say, well, okay, just get to the point of what does that blessing actually look like? Well, that blessing, we know, is an eternal blessing. We're going to get onto that later in the psalm where we have this eternal favour and the blessing of God that we receive eternal life. We receive rewards in heaven. But they're not just for when you die, these blessings. We also get to have blessings and reward today. You don't have to be a theologian or psychologist to know this. See, we know that serving, that loving others is rewarding. We use that phrase, don't we? We say, you know, I'm doing something that's really rewarding. We're experiencing a reward for helping others. Happy is the one who blesses the poor. We receive happiness. We receive reward when we care for people. So like in my life, one of my favorite things to do is to spend time with elderly people. And it's one of my favorite things to do because whilst I spend a lot of time with people who are like me and my age, to be honest, it doesn't particularly make their week when we hang out. Maybe occasionally, but most of the time, it's just another social event in their calendar. But for many people, for many people in our area and the neighbors around us, there is a lot of social poverty, of loneliness. It can be one of the most crippling types of poverty. People who spend day after day after day all alone. And one of the most fun things that you can do is spend time with someone who is usually alone. One of my most rewarding moments in life is knocking on the door of neighbours who would usually be on their own day after day, seeing them open the door and seeing the smile on their face. Going in for a cup of tea and a digestive biscuit. It's one of the most rewarding things because just that hour sat around a cup of tea, spending time with someone who otherwise would have been alone is so, so rewarding. And each of us around us is surrounded by people who are in a position where you just spending a bit of time with them would make all the difference. And not only would it bless them, it would bless you too. Another reward of uh, uh, caring for the poor, another blessing of considering the weak, is that it lifts our eyes from ourselves. See, whether we admit it or not, all of us are a little bit self-obsessed. Our lives revolve around thinking about ourselves. It's the kind of nature of humanity, but we can sometimes feed into it, and it's something that we really do need to lift our eyes from. Because the more we fixate on ourselves in our lives and our issues, the more it feeds into our insecurities and anxieties and fears. It's why now that studies are increasingly showing that if you are struggling with anxiety or depression, one of the best things you can do is help other people. One of the best things you can do is lift your eyes from yourself and onto someone else. See, one of the worst things you can do is get wrapped up in all of your issues and all your problems and forget other people. And when we lift our eyes, when we look to others, when we try and alleviate the pain of others, the gift, the reward, the blessing of God is that it alleviates our pain too. But here's a question for you. If you help others... If you consider the poor, if you have regard for the weak, are you going to have an easy and straightforward life? Is it always going to be a barrel of laughs? Because we've read verses 1 to 3, but it's time to get to verse 4. 
And it's almost like the whole genre, the whole focus, the whole emphasis of the psalm shifts. We've had blessing, we've had happiness, we've had all the things God gives, and then verse four happens, and it takes a serious turn. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. And this in many ways feels like one of the the dynamics of what it means to follow Jesus, to live with God. On one hand, it feels like such blessing And in other moments, it can feel like real suffering. And this psalm really encapsulates that. And even beyond that, as well as sometimes feeling blessed for remembering the poor, sometimes we can feel afflicted because of remembering the poor. In fact, sometimes doing the right thing brings things into our lives that we would rather not be there. What do I mean by that? Well, remembering the poor at work could look like this. Maybe there's someone in your office, in your workplace, in your school, in your uni, wherever you spend your time, and they're someone who regularly gets gossiped about. They're not someone who can kind of stand up for themselves, but it's just become the norm in the culture where you work to speak badly of them. Or recently I heard of a story of someone who, who was just constantly picked on to their face by their colleagues, and it just became a joke. And you, in that moment, remembering the poor, could look like standing up to your colleagues and say, look, guys, we've got to stop doing this. And I guarantee you now, they're not all going to pat you on the back for that one. It's not going to be fun and easy. Sometimes remembering the poor can mean that you then become the person who gets gossiped about and picked on. And you think, you know, it's just easier to keep my head down. Maybe we'll just pray that it stops. And it's not just in in our kind of day-to-day lives, it's also in bigger cultural issues. See, right now, for example, we think that slavery is wrong. Hands up anyone here who thinks slavery is a great thing. Anyone? Cool. We think that slavery is a terrible thing. But if we were to ask that question several hundred years ago, quite a few hands would have gone up in the room. See, as a nation, much of the wealth that you and I enjoy today is a result of slavery in our nation, one of the awkward things of our past. And as a nation, we didn't seem to have a massive problem with it for quite a long time. But then a chap called William Wilberforce, and others like him came along. You might have heard of William Wilberforce. He's a Christian guy who saw that human beings should not be bought and sold and treated as objects. He was a man who saw that all humans were made in the image of God and as such should be treated so. And at the time when William Wilberforce came to challenge slavery, it wasn't like everyone in Britain was like, hey, good job, mate. Yeah, I'm so happy for you. Yeah, this is awesome. No, when William Wilberforce tried to fight slavery, so many people turned against him. 
It's obviously easy to think that none of us would have been like that. We'd have all been on his team, wouldn't we? Yeah. But when William Wilberforce fought for slavery, so many people turned against him. They said things like, look, why are you trying to make us feel guilty about this? Like, if you don't want to have a slave, that's fine. You don't have to have a slave. You don't need to. But don't impact our decisions in our lives. Or people said, you know, we need this to be affluent as a country. Why would you try to stop something that is helping our nation prosper? Are you crazy? Other people who said, look, Wilberforce, you, you, you make all this fuss about the slaves. This is something that people said of him. You make all this fuss about the slaves, but why don't you care about the poor in our country? You care about all these you know, African slaves, but what about the British poor people? And they brought all this criticism at him. A guy who now we make films about, we celebrate, and yet at the time for trying to do the right thing was criticised even by those who are close to him. And blessing the poor and remembering the weak can look like that sometimes. See, it's a lot easier when society agrees with you. It's a lot easier when the prevailing culture is on the same team. Like at the moment, it's awesome how as a nation, we, uh, you know, I think we're on the same page that we want to help people in poverty, great. I think it's great as a, a nation how we want to um, fight against racism and promote diversity. And I, I love how as a church, that's something we really value and have really fought for for years. And it, it's great that we're on the same team as culture. And we pray for that. We pray that society would change. But increasingly, as our society, as the world around us drifts further and further from kingdom values, and from the Christian foundation that we once had, as the prevailing culture drifts further and further, it won't always be the case that we'll get a pat on the back. It could be quite the opposite when we remember the weak. Like, for example, if you want to raise the question about abortion and you want to talk about all the reasons why women might find themselves in a position where they wouldn't want to keep a child and what we can do to support them and make changes to mean that those things don't happen. And you say, well, so at the same time, I want to remember the mother. I also want to remember the unborn child, the most voiceless in our nation, the ones who can't speak up for themselves. If in that moment you say, I want to be a voice for the voiceless and remember the weak, you're probably not going to get a pat on the back at work. It's probably going to be a bit awkward in your friendship group. You're not going to have politicians wanting to celebrate what you're doing. And yet as Christians, we're called to remember the weak, whether our nation sees them as the weak or not. And sometimes that will mean that we're celebrated and other times that will mean we're persecuted. And yet the way of Jesus, the way of the kingdom, is to remember the weak. And when we do face persecution, when we do face opposition, let's remember the words of Jesus. Do not be surprised when they hate you, for they hated me first. And as we keep reading the psalm, we see that in this pursuit of serving, of loving and caring for the poor, we really can be hurt. It really can be painful. And David, the psalmist, feels this pain. 
We read in verse 9, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me, has turned away from me. And it's so painful when that happens. And you know what? Sometimes, sometimes the person you're trying to help, the person you've invested in so much, can be the person who turns against you. And if you've ever been in that position, it is one of the most painful and confusing things you can experience. My dad was a, um, a missionary in Morocco in the 80s. And it was and still is illegal to be a Christian there. And uh, he worked with uh, kind of the underground church trying to share the good news of Jesus with people. It was illegal to that. He was arrested. It was all, I mean, it kind of sounds a bit rock and roll. They do Bible studies in the woods and baptize people in bathtubs and all stuff like that. But a lot of what he did was just remembering the poor, caring for people who were struggling. And there was one guy in particular who he spent a huge amount of time invested in who was a guy who was wrestling with a drug addiction. And my, my dad spent a lot of time invested in this guy, and this guy would regularly come over, and they'd hang out, and my dad would try and help him with his issues. And one time he came and knocked on the door, and at this point my mum and dad had just gotten married, they were living in Casablanca together, and um, this chap knocked on the door, as he regularly did, but this time was a little bit different. This time he went into the kitchen and grabbed a knife, and he held up my mum and dad at knife point. And then he proceeded to steal all of their wedding presents. Every single one that they'd just been given a few weeks prior at their wedding in good old Somerset. This is a man who my dad had invested huge amounts of time and energy and love and compassion into. And yet this was a man who held him up at knife point and took everything that they had. And sometimes that can be the way when we care for the poor. It puts you in a very vulnerable position because you open up your life, you open up your heart to people often who have been through a lot of horrible things, who aren't always the most stable, who aren't always able to live consistently. And when you put yourself in, posi- in that position to remember the poor, you open yourself up to be deeply hurt. And if you've ever experienced that pain, you'll know it's one of the most confusing and upsetting pain. Now, just an aside, an interesting twist to this story that my dad always liked to share was that um, a few months after this guy had robbed them, he then knocked on their door and he just turned up like nothing had ever happened and wanted to come in and hang out. And the, the funniest thing about it is that he turned up wearing some of my dad's clothes that he'd stolen. I mean, that's, I mean, that's pretty creative, to be fair to the lad. He turned up wearing the clothes that he'd robbed from my dad. See, sometimes remembering the poor can be one of the most painful things. There's no guarantees that it's always going to be plain sailing. In fact, I can almost guarantee that you'll be, you'll be hurt along the way. And the comforting thing is this. Jesus understands. And he's been there too. See, what you might not realize is that the verses we've just read in Psalm 41, Jesus actually quoted himself when ref- referring to the betrayal of Judas. He says this in John 13, 18, he, at the Last Supper, he says, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. 
I mean, I think it's easy for us to forget that Jesus was fully man, that he had emotions too. Imagine what it was like for Jesus when Judas betrayed him. We kind of see Judas as this kind of bad guy. But at the time, he was just one of the 12 disciples, one of Jesus' mates, someone who Jesus had invested in, cared for, laughed with, cried with, shared really personal moments, one of Jesus' best friends. And yet Judas, the one who Jesus invested in, cared for, betrayed him. And so when you come to Jesus with that pain, when that moment comes where you feel let down or abandoned, you can come to Jesus knowing that he understands. And the wonderful truth is this, he doesn't just understand, but he promises. He promises to never leave you, to never forsake you. And we read that at the end of this psalm in verses 10 onwards, it says, but you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. See, the psalm ends with the truth that whilst we may face persecution, whilst we may face pain, that is never the end of the story. The psalm reminds us that one day Jesus will make all wrongs right. The psalm reminds us what? You delight in me. You have upheld me. You have set me in your presence forever. And yes, there'll be persecution. And yes, there will be pain. But we can know the covenant-keeping, faithful God. And when we don't consistently show integrity, like David, when we sin, when we have to say, oh Lord, be gracious to me, we know that God's answer is always going to be, yes, I will be gracious to you. Because the one who David cried out to, the one who we cry out to, he did not stay silent. He did not stay far off. No, God came near. Jesus remembered the poor. He remembered you and I. He considered the weak. God made him who had no sin be sin for us so that in, in him we might become the righteousness of God. And whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't that you'd become good enough. You've helped enough poor people. You'd earn your salvation. No. Whilst you were an enemy of Christ, he came to you in your darkness. We heard about in the worship. His light broke in. Whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He remembered us. And for the joy set before him, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. And what was that joy? What was the blessing that Jesus sought? It was relationship with you. Relationship with you. He remembered the poor. He remembered me and remembered you. What a king. What a savior. What a promise. He will never leave you nor forsake you. 
He will never say, enough is enough. Seriously? How many times did you repent of that sin and you're saying it again? No, he will never leave you and never forsake you. And that is what gives us as a future. That's what gives us a hope. That's what gives us a confidence. Your life may not work out as you hoped. Your future may not be exactly how you dreamed. But one day there is a future where he will wipe away every tear. Suffering will be no more. Disappointment will be no more. Betrayal will be no more. Injustice will be no more. Injustice never gets the end of the story. Pain never gets the final word. No, Jesus is coming and one day he will wipe away every tear and justice will reign. And as we see that picture of heaven, as we see that picture of glory, it takes us back to the beginning of Psalm 41. Because as we see heaven, we don't say, man, I can't wait for that day. We say, I can't wait for that day, but I want some of that now. I want, to, I want that prayer. I want the prayer to be the one that Jesus taught us, which is your kingdom come, your will be done as what? On earth as it is in heaven. See, our prayer isn't, oh, I hope I can just get to heaven sooner. No, it's I want to bring heaven down. If there's going to be no injustice in heaven, I want to fight injustice now. If Jesus is going to wipe away every tear on that day, I want to start wiping away tears now. Yes, we will never see it perfectly now. We're in the kingdom coming, not yet. We're kind of in this weird in between. But we're not just holding on, saying, please, God, come quickly, just solely waiting in quiet churches. No, we are going out to the least, the last, and the lost. We're not hiding away in holy huddles. No, we are going to bind up the brokenhearted, to be on the mission of God. That is what we're about, new community. To remember the poor to remember the weak, to see his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And the end of the psalm is really interesting. The end of the psalm says, amen and amen, or amen and amen, whatever your personal preference is. Amen and amen. Why does it say that? Well, this psalm is the end of this first book of psalms. And this amen and amen, this let it be, let it be, is a cry, a corporate cry together. Christopher Ash says this, that amen and amen show that the congregation of God's people were expected not simply to listen to the Psalms, but to join in and, as it were, add their signatures to them, to affirm all that is asked of us as we join in, not simply this Psalm, but all of Psalms 41, 1 to 41. What he's saying, what the amen and amen say, is that as we hear these truths, as we read these truths, there's a corporate, a collective understanding of we do this together. It's not just kind of the leader or the, the kind of the social action team or the, the one who has a heart for the poor who does these things. No, we all do these things and we all do them together. If you wonder why we bang on about community all the time, it's because of the amen and amen. It's the corporate, it's the together, it's the I'm not just going to wait for the specialist. I want to be in this family on mission to see the least, the last, and the lost reach with the kingdom of God. I want to work with my brothers and sisters to see light in the darkness. I don't just want to sit on the sideline and hear other people's stories. I want my story. I want to put a smile on other people's faces because I have bound up their wounds. I have brought joy into their life. I want to see this happen in my life. And I want to do it as family. I want to do it together. 
It's the blessing of family. Amen and amen. And that is how we are going to finish the meeting today with an amen and amen. And so we're going to finish in prayer. And we're going to pray in just smaller groups that God would make us a family that seeks to bring God's kingdom to earth. That we as new community, when people see us, they would say, this is a church that remembers the poor, that considers the weak. And also praying that we would be willing to step into places where the world doesn't want us to step. To consider the poor, even when like Wilberforce, there is opposition and persecution. That we would be those who are more concerned about the glory of God than the approval of man. And if you're not someone who yet knows Jesus, who wouldn't say that you're currently a follower of Christ, well, today is an opportunity for you to step into the story, to join the family, an opportunity for you to say, I want to be part of this kingdom, this truth, this great plan for all humanity. And if that's you in this time of prayer, maybe just turn to the people you're with and say, you know, I think I'd like to explore what it means to know Jesus, to live for him.